From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome to Total SF in Exile. Welcome, Lily Janik. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. My pleasure. I'm always stoked to talk about bicycling, the thing that I love that's not theater. <laughs> yeah. We're going to talk a little bit about both, but a lot of bicycling. And um, I want to just, for this intro, think back to one of the nicest and most impactful things anybody's ever done for me. And this was a few years ago. We didn't know each other all that well. We're kind of one desk over from each other, but I'm trying to figure out whether I'm too loud and whether I'm bothering you. And you made an offer to me to be my bike mentor. Um, do you remember that day? Did I phrase it like that? I hope I didn't. Um, that might have been your phrasing. <laughs> it, it sounds a little, I would like to be your mentor. Like that's, I. Hopefully, I offered to do you a favor. Yeah, it was a big <laughs> favor. Um, I had a bike that I had not been using. Um, I had uh, not ridden a bike meaningfully for 20 years. Um, and I lived in San Francisco and just had my bike in my garage and would take my car in everywhere crazily. But I live in Alameda. There's bike lanes coming up. And I asked you, I'm like, I think I want to do a commute on the ferry, but I'm worried about biking in San Francisco. And you met me out at the ferry to like shepherd me into work and teach me the ways of biking. You you needed an escort. You wanted to feel safe and protected. And I was that person. I am always happy to help convert a new bicyclist or take someone to the next level in their bicycling. Uh, but maybe you were the only person ever to take me up on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the good news. Um, this ties into the first edition of our Throughline project. Um, it's a section in the Chronicle for the next nine weeks. We're looking at the possibilities for the city after the pandemic and the protest movement. Um, in the first edition, we're redrawing the map of San Francisco, and I'm writing about bikes and pedestrians and what our possible future could be. And that moment with, with me and you actually really ties into it, because I talk to people, um, I talk to the SF Bike Coalition, and I talk to just people out there with their bikes, and it sounds like what you did with me during this pandemic is happening out there right now. Um, a lot of people are helping each other out, converting people to make them more comfortable on bicycles. And maybe we get out of this pandemic with a bigger bicycle army than ever. That is the dream. Let's, let's all, if you are able, let us all get on bicycles. And I think even if you don't think you're able, there might be a bicycle out there for you or a way of bicycling out there for you. Awesome. So we're going to talk about bikes today. I'd like to hear your story and get your thoughts on the biking future in San Francisco. I'm Peter Hartlob here with Lily Janik, and this is Total SF. Thank you very much. So, Lily, one of my last 
pre-pandemic memories was a very, very memorable evening with you and a stand-up comic named Juan Medina flying through San Francisco on a bike from show to show, including heading through Golden Gate Park when it was pitch dark. And that was, that. I don't remember anything after that except going home and sheltering in place. Um, do you remember that night? It was the greatest. Uh, I, so I am always riding my bike to stories, but I believe that that was the first time I recorded an interview while on a bicycle. <laughs> so I tried to ride as close to one as possible. And I had my phone uh, attached to my handlebars with this special little attacher doodad. Yeah. And, but then most of the recording was just the howling San Francisco nighttime winds. I, I did get a, a little, a little <laughs> usable audio, but not that, but still now I can just say that I recorded an interview on a bike. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, uh, uh, Nat audio, they call it, natural audio. I'm Ooh. getting the terminology down. We were working on a podcast that has not come out, and I'm not sure what the future of it is, but it was on stand-up comics, um, kind of at the entry-level, open-mic level for the most part. And we found this guy, like the second place that you and I went together, this guy had a bike, and you and I were both like, Ooh. bike! <laughs> right. <laughs> bike, bike, bike! Let's, let's talk to this guy. <laughs> yeah. And he was awesome. I hope that story um, gets out someday or we can use that audio somehow. Then things change. Um, and I wanted to just before we talk more about bikes, just ask you what it's been like covering theater, um, which certainly has changed as much as anything. And going into this pandemic, you know, I think a lot of theater companies were probably as vulnerable as anybody. What types of things have you seen and how has your beat changed? My beat has completely changed. I would say before my coverage was maybe 75% reviews and 25% more like general reporting features, profiles, Q&As, some investigative stories. Now I'm almost entirely a reporter. Um, there have been some theater-like uh, events that I can cover, some, and uh, some that I can review, but uh, not that many yet. These are Zoom plays. These are radio plays. They are, um, there's going to be a drive-in theatrical thing that's going to happen in Oakland in September that I'm uh, very excited for, though I think I have to have a car I think a bicycle oh, will not work for that. I went to a drive-in movie on Friday at a golf course driving range parking lot. Um, so drive-ins. Yeah, drive-ins. Who knew those would come back? Uh, in a big way, maybe. But yeah. so uh, a lot of people ask me, is there even anything for you to write about? Which annoys me. Uh, maybe, maybe it shouldn't. I'm sure the question is well-intentioned, but... For me, as long as there are theater people out there uh, making things, thinking about things, trying to make something new, um, or, or just telling the story of what they have lost, uh, there, there is too much for me to write about. Though, again, many fewer reviews than before. The first thing I think about is 
you know, the narrow margins and all of these um, wonderful, wonderful theater institutions that, um, you know, are always struggling. But not to put a bright side on everything, but all of these brilliant people have not been raptured. Um, I'm assuming there's a lot of people out there who are doing brilliant artistic things that they don't need a brick and mortar surrounding to do. And, and like your beats not going away. I think we're going to have some brilliance come out of this. Absolutely. And like, I'm going to be reviewing um, King Lear, which on zoom, which I've, I've never gotten to see King Lear in any live fashion before. Um, That will be fascinating to see if Shakespeare's like most incomprehensible often is often called unstageable um, Mm -hmm. tragedy can like fit in this, this small zoom world. Uh, I got to write about artists who were doing like one-on-one gifts for senior citizens Mm -hmm. and it's just getting to be inside an artist's mind, um, which is what you do when you're interviewing. It's like the greatest gift. And again, I I don't want to, the financial hardship is like unfathomable, unspeakable. It's like, I I don't want to like even let myself dwell too much on the loss and mm-hmm. how big the loss could yet still be. But at the same time, artists are just the most creative um, question askers, wall topplers. Um, and they make me see the world in a new and different way every day. So to to get to spend more time talking to them and less time reviewing, it's certainly been a gift for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I can imagine, you know, how much you miss it. Um, not, not insignificant part of it is you bike to almost every play that you review. Um, that's all gone, right? Um, I can do a little bit of, on the job bicycling, like I got to ride to Twin Peaks. This was not for theater, but to cover the Pink Triangle illumination. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually I don't get to bike on top of a mountain to review a play, though I guess that could have happened with Mountain Play, uh, which is on top of Mount Tam. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that like the daily riding to Union Square to see a show at ACT or riding to the marina to see a show at the Magic. That's actually one of the best rides. You get on top of uh, Russian Hill, and then all of a sudden you see Angel Island, and then the, the Golden Gate Bridge comes into view, and it's just the most wonderful way to prepare yourself to see a play. And so I'm like, yes, I get to see a show at the Magic just for the commute to get there. Okay, well, well, there will be a biking live theater in my future. Um, I remember when you came to the Chronicle, you had a bike helmet on. Um, I think you had a bike helmet in the, you know, your Twitter avatar. Um, I just associate you with theater and biking so closely. I can't imagine you without a bike. Yeah. Can you... T- Tell me your first bike. I mean, do you remember your first bike? Was it magical? Did you get hooked from the start? 
So, okay, I, I don't know if I have a first bike story for you. However, I do have a first really good bike story for you. And this comes from when I rode across the country in 2006 on uh, a trip that is like a charity ride for Habitat for Humanity. Mm-hmm. And as part of the you raising money um, for Habitat, they hook you up with a bike. And so there I got my first specialized road bike and I named it Excalibur. <laughs> it's um, a specialized 1500. And it took me from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean. Um, my 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 fellow riders decorated it with uh, vegetable stickers because I was a vegan at the time. <laughs> so just just uh, uh, putting that out there, rode from ocean to ocean on a lot of white bread, bananas, and almond butter. Um, you said at the time, did you just pass by a really good barbecue stand and it was all over? <laughs> I uh, I think there might have been, not barbecue, but I think there might have been one vegan break or two, maybe yeah. for like a cookie. Uh, it, <laughs> there were a lot of like energy bars. It was, uh, I, I don't know if I necessarily recommend veganism and cross-country bicycling at the same time. Because you, you need a lot of calories. They say yeah. you burn like... 600 calories per hour i mean that that's that's a lot of bread and nuts um (laughs) (laughs) but so uh, your bike on a trip like that kind of becomes your home because there is no other constant in your in your life one of one of the riders like uh, i remember him describing it that way your bike is your home and that's that's really stuck with me so when uh, that bike got stolen after I moved out here to San Francisco, it was it was like losing a home, like losing a family member. Uh, I felt like a chunk of me was gone. Yeah. Um, and I, I've worked hard not to get too attached to bikes since then because it's I just don't want to I don't want to go through that again. Well, was that was that trip was that kind of where you got hooked and you know was that where you kind of took things to another level with theater or were you already using your bike to commute so i have been kind of a a lifelong bicyclist i got into it because of my mom um she comes from a family of very intense athletes um my family is not a not a theater family we are a sports family So my mom and I, our thing was like when we lived in a suburb of Nashville, we would, the two of us, get on our bikes, ride to the library. I don't don't know how far away it was, maybe um, 10 or 11 miles, um, check out some books and ride on back. And that was just, that was before I could drive. And so the freedom in that, you can go somewhere, you can feel the wind on your face, you're moving, the trees are flashing by. I think that was where I, I really got into it. And when my mom and I are together now, she's, she lives in Texas. We still ride. Um, for years, she was the stronger bicyclist of the two of us. Mm-hmm. I, I think even after I did the cross-country trip, 
Um, and it's only been recently that I might have surpassed her in physical strength, but I try not to like make a big deal out of it or even because like that that would be like, oh. <laughs> so, um, mom, don't listen to this podcast. <laughs> I think she's probably okay with it. But um, uh, San Francisco, um, I found when you got me into biking, one of the big reasons was that I was sick of the traffic. Now, I had done almost 20 years of driving into San Francisco once, twice a week sometimes, um, sometimes more if I had assignments. And I just remember when I started getting on my bike and flying by those cars and just suddenly realizing, wait, this is more efficient and it's a quicker way to get places. It's more reliable um, and I feel good. And especially during those commute hours, um, just so much more efficient. And I wanted to ask you, because the thing that I noticed is how once you hook up with the bike network and you have your bike mentor and you um, start realizing how good Google is at mapping things out, um, how accessible everything is. San Francisco is a seven by seven city. You can get everywhere on a bike. You can get almost everywhere walking. I mean, it's much more accessible than people give it credit for. And year-round, unlike the other places where I've lived, which are Michigan, Connecticut, Tennessee, and Texas. So it is temperate. Um, you, you know, not everybody wants to bike in the rain. Uh, I understand that, but you are not going to have the the snow or the 100 plus degree days here. So it's, there's a lot to recommend San Francisco to a bicyclist and you can get around the Hills. Like as Peter was saying, um, uh, so Google will help you get around the Hills. So you don't have to like climb Mount Davidson. You don't have to climb twin peaks to get, to get to work. And it is amazing to have your commute make you feel good instead of making you feel tense like yeah bicyclists we we can kind of like walk into work being like hey guys <laughs> <laughs> i feel so great and I, i'm sure like everybody else in features is looking at us like we're a little bit loopy and maybe we are endorphins can do crazy things to a person's mind but one can look forward to one's commute yeah as a bicyclist which uh, you is know bananas the endorphins for me make me smug because um, <laughs> not only do I walk in with my helmet so everybody can see that I biked, I leave my gloves on and I have like these like gloves with little, they're yellow and really flashy and I'm like waving with my bike glove. I bike today. <sighs> that and having a rescue dog in the last two years, you won't get through a conversation with me without mentioning my rescue dog, not dog, my rescue dog. And everywhere that I'm biking, but um, I'm okay with it because you know. But I, I wanted to ask you about theater. So you're biking to plays often at night. Um, oh yeah. Probably don't always have BART access to where you're going. What have some of your challenges been, and have you been able to get pretty much everywhere? Uh, almost everywhere. So let's take the case of Theater Works, which performs in. Palo Alto and Mountain View. So uh, that is a really tricky place to get to via public transit and bicycle. You've got um, maybe 
close to two hours on Caltrain plus uh, some biking on either side. But get this, I will still do that if I can, rather than like taking a company car or a zip car, because I notice like I get that tension that you were describing if I drive to a show and then I like have to take the time to shake it off Mm -hmm. or, or deal with it. Um, And I'd rather just have the peace of, of, being on the train and, and riding, um, even if it's hours more. I know that sounds like, I know that sounds crazy, um, but, you know, going back, I can start writing my review on the train um, it, with my little notepad. So it, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't feel like a waste of time. I used to be a big-time driver. I lived in Texas, um, and I was a merchandiser for a grocery sto- for like grocery stores for um, a summer. So I was driving like all the way to Oklahoma um, for, as like a day's commute. But I just feel so much better about the world now that I'm in a car maybe once a month or less. Yeah, you know, I almost look at it like. Um... You know, I played video games for a long time, still do a little bit. And I look at it almost like beating a boss and unlocking a level. Um, when I started... when you is in another castle. <laughs> yeah. Your transit is in another garage. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, when I started, just getting to the Chronicle was an ordeal. I, I really needed you there to show me how to do it and feel safe. And then I remember there was one time where I realized all I was doing was biking back to the Chronicle, which is pretty easy to do. I was taking Howard and Folsom from the ferry building and doing nothing else. And then one day I realized, because I go to KQED once in a while and do a radio thing, I realized, oh, I could bike to, I think I could bike to KQED. And then I come and talk to you and you say, oh, yeah, Folsom's great. You do this. It's the green wave. And then... That was like unlocking a thing. And then once I got to KQED and realized they have a bike locker, I'm like, maybe other people have bike lockers. (laughs) And then I'm going to go to Lucasfilm. And it's like, you know, maybe I could do Lucasfilm. And I talk to you about it. You give me a couple ideas. I learn about the wiggle, you know, and and, uh, go to the park, go to Lucasfilm. Um, I don't think I took Wiggle to the Lucasfilm, but uh, there are going to be bikers listening. You go, why Wiggle to Lucasfilm? What the hell is wrong with both of you? (laughs) But you'll get lots Uh, of comments on the podcast, which will be great. (laughs) Yeah, but it just kept unlocking things. And then you start to realize, again, the city's smaller than you think, and it's more accessible than you think. And then I think, like, I'm in my, you know, mid-late 40s when I start biking again, Um you mentioned rain. I'm, I just got to the point before the pandemic where I bought waterproof gear and I'm going to ride in the rain a little bit. It's way more accessible than I think people think. And, um, and I, I think that might be something that people are learning right now in this, in this situation we're in. And imagine a world where you didn't have to unlock levels. Like what if all of the, the specialized knowledge that feels like it's a secret what if it were as part of the world and as part of your consciousness and your upbringing as driving culture? Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's a change. And, and I think, 
looking historically, and I write about this in my throughline piece, you know, the 1906 earthquake, um, you know, we had this corrupt government and couldn't get anything built. And then this earthquake hits and the mayor goes to jail. The business leaders, you know, take over and we emerge with this incredible city. Um, the Loma Prieta earthquake gave us the wonderful destruction of the Embarcadero Freeway. Uh, world War II gave us a lot of things. What people don't know is that farmers markets came out of World War II. So I think to myself, what could come out of this? And I wonder if you're thinking about that. I, I wanted to ask you how you think San Francisco has done in terms of serving bikers and pedestrians in maybe the five to 10 years before uh, this pandemic hit and, and what your hopes are coming out of it. So I should preface this again by saying I grew up in parts of the world where bicyclists were consigned to a sidewalk that would just like stop all of a sudden. Yeah. And then you're like in a green, like you're in grass. So it's, I am very grateful to live where I live, and it's part of what attracted me to move here. But we have to stop only doing essential projects once someone dies. Mm -hmm. uh, I think about how Tess Rothstein died on Howard Street last year, and then we got all this added infrastructure, and... That could have been me. Howard Street is how I get home from the Chronicle. Uh, I ride it constantly. And any of us could have told you that there's a lot that could be done to make it safer. But it, it just feels like people who ride bikes aren't the ones designing streets. Like... Even when a piece of bike infrastructure gets added, it, it's almost like, did any of these engineers, like, did they just look at it? Did any of them try to ride it? Um, so I'd really like to see people who ride bicycles have clearer input into the design that's meant to serve them. I think we need to stop seeing bicycling as a recreational activity only and see it as a crucial artery. Like if um, if Fell Street could no longer serve cars, the city would get on that right away. Mm -hmm. But when uh, something happens to a bike lane or some some piece of infrastructure that bicyclists use, it's like, oh, we'll we'll get to it uh, maybe at some point. Um, we have to stop allowing bike culture to be dominated by angry, wealthy, fit white guys, um, that will get more people bicycling um, and it will serve the needs of more bicyclists. Um, and I, I think we also have to stop thinking that just because we slap a bike lane on a piece of pavement, we're done. We can wipe our hands. Yeah and say, yay, safe bike infrastructure. The question should be who or what are we prioritizing on this street or intersection? So like, what would it look like if you looked at a, at a street, at the space between 
the private buildings on one side and the private buildings on the other um, as a blank slate of public space that we could organize however we wanted. Like, would sidewalks get bigger? Would we eliminate uh, private car storage, also known as free on-street parking, but it's really subsidized private car storage? Oh, I'm starting to get kind of political here. <laughs> this is this is getting dangerous. Um, but I just think there's we can re- reimagine more boldly than we have before. I prepared for this question a little bit. Can you tell? Yeah, no, I, and I, I let you go. Usually I, I, I jump in there, but I, I felt like, uh, I felt like this was your journey. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. I mean, I, I think about like, so we have for years, infrastructure planning, street planning has been evaluated based on this thing called level of service. And that is how fast can cars get through this thing? Mm-hmm. And that is what we have prioritized. Thankfully, that is uh, starting to, we are starting to change that. But like bicyclists and pedestrians only counted in that system by whether they slowed down cars or not. And that is just not the city planning that San Francisco needs right now. We'll be right back after this short break. Well, you mentioned Tess Rothstein, and I think that jumps out at me um, because, uh, you know, I, I've to credit how great some of the changes have been in recent years. Um, when I started writing from my house to the Chronicle, I would say I was going on about maybe 35, 40 percent bike lanes and some protected, some not. Now it's like 98%. I think there are two blocks, all of Alameda, except for the half block, I have to go to a bike lane. I am on protected bike lanes all the way to the ferry. And then with car free market, and then my options with Howard and Folsom, I have I have two different, you know, complicated, but mostly safe options to get to the Chronicle. And now Fifth Street has a bike lane on it. And this is all since I started. But that's all areas that are downtown and people look at that and they, I, I, I worry they look at car free market and say, well, we gave you that, that's it. You know, that solved it. And, um, one thing I really noticed when Heather and I did our 49 mile scenic route and I was exploring that on bike a lot and that was really opened up the city for me, but it made me realize how much like someone who lives in the sunset and wants to get downtown doesn't have a lot of really good options. And, and then there, there are places like Ingleside, which should be a really good biking street. Clement could be a good biking street. Valencia is the one that people talk about. Um, Third Street, I mean, going from Bayview to, we ended up making this map. It's a route for walkers and bikers who want to do a 49-mile scenic route. We ended up putting a warning on Third Street, like, don't bike on here, you'll die. I mean, it's just, it's not made for bikers. And, and it makes me think, you know, we see all these changes, and a lot of them are because of some tragedy happened. And they're always in places, or most of them are in places that um, focus on the downtown center. And that kind of maybe you mentioned, you know, a certain kind of demographic that's commuting there. And... I think everybody in the city should be able to to get to um, you know Chase Center, 
Chase Center's got this bike valet. It's built for bikes. Terry Francois Boulevards, you know, this this wonderful lead up to the Chase Center. I think everybody should get there. I think Steve Kerr should be able to get there from his Presidio Terrace's house. I think um, someone who lives in Hunter's Point or Bayview who has a ticket that night should be able to bike there and have a clear path and be safe. I think if there's someone who works there, who lives in the sunset, should have a safe path there. And that's part of what I wrote on this through line project I did, the 8 to 80, which is not something I made up, but 8 to 80 to Chase Center. Just the city should think that way. Is everybody who's 8 from between the ages of 8 and 80, would you feel like they could safely get to Chase Center? And the answer to that is no from like, you know, a large, large percentage of the city. Oh, absolutely not. There are so there are so many rides I do even within the city that I would not I would be very cautious about taking a novice bicyclist um with me on. I, I think of um I mentioned before that I learned to r- ride and love riding with my mom. And granted she's no city person, but we did the wiggle together and she was not prepared for that at all and like someone even yelled at her and made her cry and I just think like gosh if even this very experienced bicyclist who's totally game um can't navigate this can't figure it out and like now I don't even know if she would ride that route with me again that that's that's not what we want we're a seven by seven mile city with like very finite space in every like <laughs> sense, like and especially on the roads. We cannot have all our residents trying to get around by car. It's just not it's not efficient. So that that's an argument I trot out periodically. Yeah, well, there's been some positive developments though. Um Jeffrey Tumlin is in charge of Muni now. We have, uh, you know, 50 years they had been trying to get car-free market. That happened right before the pandemic. And then we see these slow streets. And then we see JFK Drive that's been a fight going on for 50 years that that's open. And I can't imagine that going back. Things I didn't even think about, like the Great Walkway, I had never heard of that as a concept, opening up the Great Highway to, to pedestrians and bikes. Um I'm wondering if you have any optimism coming out of this. Um, We're seeing other cities, Oslo, Paris, to an extent, Seattle, Lisbon. Other cities seem to be making radical changes coming out of this pandemic. Do you think San Francisco can be one of them? I absolutely think so. And I'm glad you mentioned the Great Walkway. I think also of Lake Street, which, you know, isn't even, it's, it's a residential street, but like you go there now you just see like little kids on their bikes with training wheels, like in the street as if it were a park, riding around in circles, as if it were their their driveway. You see folks of all ages walking, skateboarding, on scooters, skating. It just feels like a paradise. Uh, same with the Great Walkway. I mean, it just you feel free there. You feel like you could do anything. It, it's almost like we got a whole new park or something. Yeah. And all 
all we did is reallocate this city property we already had. Um, and I, I guess I think if you go there, even for just a few minutes and see, there's no way you could want to go back. So I, I hope our city officials are like observing this and seeing what an asset it is. Yeah, you know, and and the the thing that gives me optimism is that the old argument over bikes was one story after the other on what to do with Valencia Street and and who's mad and the bike shops mad and it was very much this like almost like this you know it's like it's like reading about the Kardashians you know and 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 it's this one street and nothing's getting done but that's all we're going to talk about and that's what bikes is in San Francisco it's boiled down to this one street or you know an accident and what's happening on that intersection what i'm seeing now and i i look at this as the most positive sign is it seems like the discussion is turning into what to do about the whole city Everybody, who should be a safe street and who should slow street? I keep saying safe streets. Who should be a slow street and who shouldn't? Um, you know, can we open up these things permanently? You know, even bigger ideas. Um, I think it's going to be hard coming out of this because looking at what's going on with Muni, I mean, money's going to be an issue. I also think that's what they were thinking coming out of the Great Depression, and we had the WPA, which was, you know, one of our our biggest um, opportunities for growth as a nation. So I'm going to come out of this optimistic. I'm going to try and hope that that bike army is building. And like you said, different kinds of people, a more diverse group, and we come out of this with some momentum. And uh, that's my wish. Join the army, y'all. I, I will <laughs> I will lead a charge. Um, I you know, I haven't gotten to mentor as many people as I'd like. So, like, if you're listening to this podcast and you'd like someone, I will ride with you to, like, well, if if you still have a job and, like, still go into a job r- right now or after the pandemic, yeah. after the pandemic, as if we do, is there an after? Anyways, <laughs> I will meet you at your house and, like, help you figure out the bike route that's most optimal for you. And I will do it with you. I will like ride on the dangerous side. So like the cars have to go around me. I will do this. I I will do this. I like, I, I know I'm going to get like 50,000 requests from. Oh, the... you know, I mean, we have a, we have a nice loyal readership, but oh. uh, you won't get 50,000. Um, no, I... But I would do them all. Let's do it guys. And and I wanted to ask you, I think I'm ready, if you think I'm ready, I feel like this should be your decision, I think I might be ready to take a bike mentorship role. Um, are you comfortable with that? Do you think I'm there yet? Well, Peter, um, <laughs> a, a bike mentor really only becomes a true mentor once a mentee has become his own mentor as well. So wow. this is a graduation for me. Um, as well. I, I think you're ready. I think you you wanted to be a, a bike mentor all along, maybe. Um, yeah. Maybe, maybe I'm reading a little too deeply into this. I but- wasn't I wasn't ready, but I think I'm ready now. So the offer that you just extended, um, anybody in Alameda who commutes into the city or just wants to go into the city and check out a park or something, 
I am extending that offer. If you're listening to this and thinking, well, that's weird. I mean, he's going to not want to do that. He doesn't know me. I don't care. If you're listening to this podcast, if you're in Alameda and you need someone to get you on the ferry, um, give you some tips going down market, get you started, help you feel safe, I'm ready to pass that on to somebody else because I think that's how you get started. I think that's how this gets going. I think it's like one person at a time helping people out. Uh, Same. Also, if I don't know you, that's okay. Also, I will stay six feet away from you or more, and I will wear a mask. And I, I'll even wear my like my full hazmat like rain suit, like whatever yeah. you want. I'm I am a resource for you. Let me support you in your bicycle journey. Excellent. So um, we've made a commitment here, um, but I'm happy about it. Um, really happy that you came on. Glad to talk to you as always, but to hear a little bit more about your story. And, uh, and you were the first person I called when I was working on this project. Um, you're not quoted in it because I don't think they let us do that. But I talked to you and uh, I talked to your husband, Brian, and just got a lot of background. And um, just really glad that you got me started on this journey. Thank you for that, Lily. Also, I, uh, some of the wonkier terms here I brushed up on right before this podcast recording by talking to my husband, which is maybe the least feminist thing I've ever admitted. <laughs> hey, husband, can you uh, help me out with the like higher level knowledge here? But it, uh, so props to Brian Coyne for his expertise. Uh, Brian Coyne is very smart about bicycles. Um, so uh, you did the right thing going to him. And uh, thank you very much, Lily. Thanks for coming on uh, Total SF. Right on, man. You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to Lily Janik. Total SF is a production of the Chronicle. Our music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks off their album Community and Cable Car Bell Ringing by eight-time champion Byron Cobb. Support Total SF in the newsroom that creates it by signing up for a digital Chronicle edition at sfchronicle.com slash pod. <laughs>